Our scripture uh, reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 11 through 30. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then, came, then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Luke 19, 35 to 39. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Excuse me one moment <laughs> to decide which glasses work best. <laughs> I think that's okay. 
Let's pray. Lord, may the meditation, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's interesting to listen to the words of famous people uh, that they speak just before momentous events. Words that inspire or encourage or even warn. I think of somebody like Winston Churchill uh, after the bombing of, of London went on the radio to encourage the people of England uh, for all that was to come still in World War II. And it ends this stirring speech with never, never, never give up. And in fact, the, wor the last words of a dying person are often taken as highly trustworthy in a court of law, if that were to be an issue. And so I wondered why Jesus told this particular parable just before the momentous events of his, uh, that were going to transpire in the week or so ahead of him. And why Luke records it and places it in his gospel just before Jesus enters Jerusalem and the events leading up to his betrayal. Luke is the only one of the gospel writers who does this. Matthew has a similar parable, but it's not said in conjunction with the triumphal entry. And Luke certainly is a master narrator. He promises to give an orderly account to Theophilus in the first chapter of Luke when he's telling why he's writing this. And he pays careful attention to details. So I want to look at this parable a little closer with that in mind. Now the opening verse in chapter 19, verse 11, uh, there are three reasons given for why he's telling this parable. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Well, what things? By this time in Jesus' ministry, he had attracted great crowds. This was probably the third year of his ministry, a total of, of three years of active ministry in his life. And the crowds he had attracted were full of hangers-on, disciples, uh, Pharisees, scribes, religious people, the not-so-religious people. And so at this point, he has a great crowd with him. He's going on his way up from Jericho to Jerusalem, and that's about a, a distance of about 17 miles. And along the way, he has healed a blind man who has called out to him, Son of David. This is very significant because Son of David is a messianic title. So that's one thing that the crowd heard. Just inside Jerusalem, 
I mean, inside Jericho, he has encountered Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, if you know the story, has been up in a sycamore tree because he's a little man. And he wants to see Jesus. And Jesus invites him down and says, I'm coming to your house today, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus has an immediate response of just changing all of his business practices. He's been a, a chief tax collector. And they were despised in, in Israel. And uh, he says, I'm gonna, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to give them four times what I cheated them from. So a real turnaround in, in Zacchaeus' life because of Jesus greeting him and saying he was coming to his house. And Jesus says to him, salvation has come to this house today. So, son of David and salvation through Jesus. So the crowd marveled at that healing, and, but it grumbled about Zacchaeus. You see a, a tension there. Now, the next reason was because he was near to Jerusalem. Jesus knows he is going to die. He's predicted it three times before this. He knows that he is deliberately going up to Jerusalem to die. And so this only doubles the importance, it seems to me, of him telling this parable. The third reason is because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to occur immediately, was to appear immediately. Now, clearly, this crowd of Jews is waiting for the kingdom. But what kind of kingdom? For the faithful, they remembered the covenants made to Abraham and to, and to uh, David. The covenant to Abraham was that they would have a kingdom, that they would have a land of their own. Um, and as you know, they went into exile and were, were back but they never really had the land as their own uh, up at, to this point. And of course, to David, God had promised that there would always be a son of David, note that term, a son of David on David's throne, and that it would be an eternal throne forever and ever. Clearly, this is not the case. At this point, Jerusalem and Israel is occupied by Rome. So one of the kinds of kingdoms that they're looking for is this fulfillment of covenant, but also it's a physical kingdom and a political kingdom. They longed for the glory days of David and Solomon, and they wanted independence from Rome and from all of its, the, the oppressors that they have had before. Their hopes had been built up during the Maccabean revolt some 200 years earlier. Judah Maccabeus was a sort of messianic figure. He had delivered them from the power of the Assyrians, of the Assyrians, rather, at that, at that time. But the magic had not worked. They were still occupied. And so they were looking for a king 
they were looking for release from Rome. And at that time, there were zealots in, in Jerusalem, which were a first century radical political movement trying to incite Judea against Rome. So this is the kind of kingdom that most Jews are expecting. And Jesus looks like the right candidate for the king. He is the son of David. He's a healer. He's a teacher. He comes in the name of the Lord. You might remember in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So there's an awareness that he comes in the name of the Lord. So it's in this context that Jesus tells the parable of the ten minas. Some comment, commentators say that this is a story about stewardship. But why tell a story about stewardship at this particular point? And why, if your audience thinks that the kingdom is Im imminent, would you tell a story about stewardship? And stewardship of what, exactly? Money? That doesn't seem to fit. So I think that this parable is really about waiting. And I want to consider who waits, how they should wait, and why Jesus spoke this parable just before going up to Jerusalem. And then we'll draw some conclusions for ourselves. Let's look at the parable again. Now you know a parable is a story told to change or subvert your worldview. Its elements usually correspond in some way to known ideas or concepts of the hearers. But it is inherently somewhat hidden and ambiguous. Poet Emily Dickinson wrote, tell the truth, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And she ends that little poem with, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And I think that that's what Jesus does with his parables. He tells us the truth, but tells it slant so that it doesn't overwhelm us and dazzle us all at once. Now, the nobleman in the story, and clearly Jesus is telling the story about himself, and notice he doesn't say that he's the king yet. He is of noble birth. A nobleman is going on a long journey to gain his kingdom. Now, historically, this is how Roman officials claimed their kingdoms. Um, they went off from the provinces to to Rome to claim a kingdom from Caesar. The Caesar in Rome would give them their kingdom. So Jesus' audience would have been familiar with this idea of going away to claim a kingdom. Let's think about who waits. There are two groups of people described in this parable who are the ones left behind from the king, and they are servants and citizens. Let's deal with the citizens first. They are those in the nobleman's land who declare they do not want this man to reign over them. And apparently, again, historically, this actually happened when the son of Herod the Great 
Archelaus went to Rome to claim his rule over Judea. The Jews actually sent a delegation to Rome, to Caesar Augustus, um, but were denied. And Archelaus did become the king over Judea at the time, but he was such a despotic and awful king that he was eventually replaced by a series of procurators. Pontius Pilate was the fifth such a procurator. So inciting these citizens, Jesus shows that he knows what will happen soon. The cheers of Palm Sunday will soon turn into the jeers of Good Friday. We will not have this man to reign over us. But those listening to Jesus just then could not possibly have imagined it. Next, there are the servants. These servants are not slaves, but more like bondservants, those who have willingly put themselves in, into the service of the nobleman and have been given responsibility over his household. They've also been given a minna each. Now, a minna apparently is, was worth in that economy um, about three months' wages. So it wasn't an extraordinary amount, but it was still significant. And unlike the parable of the talents, where people are given different amounts, each of these servants is given one minute each. Uh, and a minute is a sixtieth of a talent, so you can figure out how extraordinary the amount of the talents was. But this is just a, a significant but not um, huge amount. Also, it would be worth about, as I said, three months' wages, but this is not given as a wage. This is just given to them, okay? We looked at this parable in a very fine Sunday school class given by Darcy, or led by Darcy, and the question of what the minnow was supposed to be came up in that class. What is given to every servant of the nobleman equally? First, I thought, well, maybe it's time. But time is given to everyone, and not equally. Um, the gospel, that's a possibility, and a very fine possibility. Um, parables are open to some latitude of interpretation. But I thought to myself, well, you know, the gospel is given out to a lot of people, too. Not everyone takes it but it's given. So I thought a little further about this, and what I've come to believe that is that the minna that is given to every servant of Christ is the new life in Christ. Now, every one of us has physical life, but the life that Jesus promises is qualitatively different. It is eternal. And that eternity begins now. It's a spiritual life. Jesus says in John's Gospel, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now in the story, that life is given with a purpose for its use. It is to be used for the nobleman's purposes, to advance the kingdom 
in anticipation of his return. You've heard the old saying, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. Well, I think that's what Jesus means here. This is not a call for everyone to enter foreign missions or to go to seminary or become a pastor, but it is a call to all that we, that we do, to do all that we do in the name of Christ, bringing honor and reality to his kingdom in this world. So this is how they are to wait. The nobleman has given the servants menace with his personal commission to engage in business until I return. Now at his return, two types of servants are described. Two of the ones that are called out take their minna and they earn five and ten minas five and ten times the amount of their original working capital. But the other servant puts his minna carelessly aside, wrapped in a napkin. It's not invested. It's not even used to bring pleasure. Or it's not used in any productive way. So perhaps, in some sense, the story really is about stewardship. The stewardship of our lives, the main gift that Christ gives us to use in advancing his kingdom. It is also about flourishing in the use of that gift, knowing the full blessing and commissioning of Jesus upon us. But it is also a warning as to the servant who hid his minna with seeming fear and resentment about the nobleman. There will be a commensurate reward, if you want to call it that, for ingratitude and sloth towards Christ's gift. But there will be lavish reward for diligence and flourishing in its use. Well, so much for the parable itself. But why is it spoken here, before Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem? First of all, I think it's a heads up to Jesus' disciples about the events that are about to unfold. Jesus knows he is going to Jerusalem to die and has said so, but it, so he wants to assure them of his return, but also to give them an inkling of what that return will look like. And so it is given as an encouragement and a warning for all who wait his return. The crowd thinks he's declaring he's the coming king, which of course he is, but not in the way they think. So with the parable ringing in their ears, Jesus enters Jerusalem looking for the world like the Messiah promised in the Old Testament by prophets, humble, riding on a donkey's colt like David returning from civil war with his son Absalom in peace to restore, not conquer, Jerusalem, if only they had eyes and ears to understand. Following this, Jesus makes two prophetic statements that bear on the parable. 
After the crowds hail him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus does a very unkingly thing. He goes to an overlook over the city and he weeps for it. He knows what will happen less than 40 years later, the siege and fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He predicts it in fearsome terms, but not nearly as gruesome and fearsome as the reality that took place. Josephus, the first century historian, describes just horrific events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem. And scripture also says that he weeps for two specific reasons. Because they didn't know what makes for peace, and they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. Their visitation from God, from Jesus himself. And so Jesus weeps because while they are citizens in his land, they have refused his reign. Later, he tells his followers the signs and portents of his return. And I'd like to read that for you. That comes in chapter 21, um, very briefly. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. When asked by his disciples when the kingdom would be restored, Jesus responded that it was not for them or even for himself to know the time that the Father had set. Mark's Gospel speaks of earthquakes, wars, international turmoil as the birth pangs, but the end is not yet. So here we are, some 2,000 years later. The king has indeed gone on a very long journey. I don't know if these things have begun or not. The events around us, the nightly news, the horrific uh, shooting in Nashville this week, earthquakes, pandemics, and on and on. They all seem like birth pangs that mention in Bach's gospel. But throughout history, people have thought that they were living in the last days. So we don't know a calendar date for when the king will return. But what we do know is this, that as Christians, we live in a now but not yet kingdom. The kingdom has begun, but it's not fully here. The nobleman, Jesus, who entered Jerusalem humbly on a little donkey, went on to be enthroned on a Roman cross, 
crowned with thorns to gain his kingdom all for the love of us. And it is he who has promised that he will come back and claim his own. Like Calvin professor James K. Smith that uh, says in the quote at the top of your bulletin, the Christian life is like living in escrow. The creator has retaken possession, but we're waiting for closing. He continues, the question is not whether we know what's coming, but how we live in the light of such expectation. The question of the when leads back to my comportment, how the parousia, or the coming of Christ, stands in my life. We are called and encouraged by this parable to live in hope and full expectation of that return. Though he's gone on a long journey, he will return, and not on a little donkey, but as a triumphant king with both rewards and judgment in his hand. So my question to each of us is threefold. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the kingdom with hope, knowing it will come in spite of and through all the difficulties that life may hold? Second, what are you waiting for? Are you using the gift of eternal life, fruitful life, fullness of life, confident of the commissioning and blessing of our Lord and for his kingdom? And finally, what are you waiting for? Do you look forward to the return of the king, victorious over sin and death? or not. If not, he weeps for you. Don't miss the time of your visitation. The Apostle Paul writes, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. On this side of the crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection assures us of new life, new purpose, new hope, new joy so that we can say with the psalmist, lift up your heads that the king of glory may come in. Our redemption draws near. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the words of, your, of the scriptures that tell us these things. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.